the Anesthesia Podcast. Good morning and welcome to this live broadcast, which is all about a new secondary analysis of the PREVENT study. And I'm delighted to be joined um, all the way in Australia by three of the paper's authors, Professor Toby Richards, Dr. Anastasia Keegan, and Professor Lachlan Miles. Um, so good morning, everyone, or good afternoon, or good evening, wherever you are. Um, I'm just going to ask you to go around and just briefly introduce yourself, if that's okay. So we'll start with um, uh, Professor Richards. Hi there, I'm Toby Richards. I'm a practicing surgeon uh, currently in Perth in Western Australia. Um, also have done a few trials on the use of intravenous iron in the past, one of which was the PREVENT trial. And Anastasia? Thank you. So my name is Anastasia Keegan. I'm a haematologist and transfusion medicine specialist based in Perth, Western Australia, and currently head of haematology at a high-risk neonatal and obstetric hospital. And finally, uh, Lachlan, who's also um, delighted to say, is also an editor of um, uh, Anesthesia Reports. Hi, Lachlan. Thanks, Mike. Uh, I'm a practicing cardiac and liver transplant anesthetist in uh, Austin Health in Melbourne and at the University of Melbourne, where I'm a member of the Department of Critical Care. Uh, I've had an interest in iron and iron physiology dating back to my PhD. and I've worked with both Toby and Anastasia now for a number of years. So thank you um, for the, to the three of you for giving up your time. It's a really, really great paper. I was delighted to see it published in uh, Anesthesia and um, uh, just a few days ago. Uh, it's free to access today um, and indeed forever because it's an open access paper. And uh, we will be tweeting some of the messages of the paper as the day goes on today. But um, it's great to have the three of you so we can actually talk through some of the um, important aspects of the paper and some of the messages and make sure that um, that we all understand exactly what the trial says and what it doesn't. Um, so going back now to 2020, which um, seems like a lifetime ago now, um, right in the middle of the COVID-19 pandemic, um, the PREVENT RCT was published in The Lancet. Um, can you summarise its main findings and what its clinical implications are? Thanks, Mike. So the PREVENT trial was a phase three HTA trial. And so we have to be cognizant of the context in which this trial uh, was designed. If you wind back the clock 10 years, we uh, had done as much data and analyses as possible to suggest that anemia appeared to be an independent risk factor for poor outcomes in patients undergoing major surgery. And therefore, it was a plausible question. If you correct the anemia, do you correct that associated risk? And at that time, the development of novel intravenous ions meant that we were able to treat anemia um, with intravenous iron and improve hemoglobin levels. So therefore, put two and two together, does it equal four? Now, a few premises to this. The data were anemia and outcomes. Now, no one, to the best of my knowledge, has broken down causality of anemia and different outcomes. So we made the assumption that about three quarters of people presenting with anemia would have iron deficiency. And this was either due to loss of blood, such as colorectal or GI cancer, or iron sequestration, which is a functional iron deficiency mediated by inflammation. So the team of 36 investigators with over 200 local investigators recruited 500 patients. 
these were your usual major surgery patients, and they underwent big operations. So the average operation was a Whipple's. The second most common was a Vertimes hysterectomy. So big stuff, average of three hours skin to skin and um, five hours uh, anesthesia time. Why? Because the primary endpoint was blood transfusion. Because when you design a clinical trial, you have to power it for where the data is most plentiful. And the data was most plentiful uh, for transfusion. And 10 years ago, there was an issue with, are we transfusing too heterogeneously or too much? So the trial was conducted. And what we showed was that actually, yes, a third of people had preoperative anemia. And you could give them intravenous iron in the setting of normal NHS timelines, um, which is what the design of the trial was for. But the interesting thing was, is despite this, and despite a rise in the hemoglobin, overall, there was no significant change in the transfusion rates between those that received intravenous iron and those that did not. Now, the important thing about that is that that was on the intention to treat analysis, on the per protocol analysis and every single subgroup that we predefined. But more importantly, as is always the case with randomized controlled trials, it's the secondary endpoints that are really interesting. Was there a change in complications, length of stay? And there was not. Um, so the overall design of the trial for the HTA is, should we implement an intervention in the normal timelines of the NHS? And therefore, on the results of this trial, should NICE, because it's an HTA trial, uh, issue guidelines to change practice? And the answer to that was no. And that is what the trial was designed to do. It's not designed to do anything more than that. Now, this reanalysis was to look at the different causalities of anemia at randomization. And to do this, we looked at those with absolute iron deficiency as a ferritin less than 30, or functional iron deficiency, which we can talk about a little bit more, but perhaps is designed as a ferritin less than 100, or TSATs less than 20%, and then the others. And we plan prevent trial to have at least 75% iron deficiency. We had 82%, so in keeping what we planned. And that's an adequate power within the numbers to prove to address the primary endpoints assessed. The long and short of it is the reanalysis of the trial results don't change the overall message of the main trial. But of course, there are many things we can discuss. Yeah, it's um, a really impressive paper. And um, were there any issues with um, the timing of its publication? Obviously, it's been years and years and years in the making. And then obviously, the paper then comes out, you know, just as COVID is starting to cause problems. Yeah, so look, I mean, I'm quite proud of that, actually, um, because if you read any of the journals at that time, it goes COVID, 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 prevent <laughs> COVID, COVID, COVID. So <laughs> the, um, the flip side is we've never really had the opportunity to stand on stage and talk to people about it. So you're looking at 10 years of hard work, 500 odd patients, uh, 300 researchers, and I could talk to you for nonstop for about 27 hours about prevent, and we had 2,000 to 3,000 words. So it's it's like an oxo cube, and there's so much more we could say. Um, but there we are. 
data are data. Nothing I can do to change the data. <laughs> um, anything to add, Anastasia or um, or Lachlan? Right, okay. So, uh, look, I think um, the nature of this study uh, is tremendously additive to the work that was done in the original PREVENT trial. I think I was chatting to Toby early today about the response to the PREVENT trial, and it really did seem to me as an observer to split the profession down the middle. You either agreed with PREVENT and therefore believe that all preoperative intravenous iron should be stopped, which of course is, is not the message of this trial. Or you felt that the authors were heretics and should be burned at the stake, which of course is definitely not true. Uh, what I think Prevent ID or the Prevent Iron Deficiency Analysis has shown is that our approach to intravenous iron needs to be more nuanced and it needs to change. So before Prevent, what were we doing? Well, we were kind of randomly spraying intravenous iron around like it was coming out of a fire hose to any anemic patient that was coming up for major surgery, often as little as, as one to two weeks prior to surgery, which Anastasia as a jobbing hematologist will probably tell you is, is not really enough time to guarantee an adequate hematinic response. Uh, so what does Prevent ID shows? Well, it shows that there might be one small group that benefits from this approach, which is patients who have a ferritin less than 30. But those patients who meet consensus definitions of iron deficiency that aren't a ferritin less than 30, they don't appear to, to yield the hemoglobin incrementation benefit. So what does this mean for the definition of perioperative iron deficiency? And I really want to hear Anastasia's view on this as somebody who looks at iron studies every day, is, is what is it? We know it's a ferritin of less than 30, but after Prevent ID, can we say that anything else that we would have normally called a combination of transferrin, saturation and ferritin as, as being iron deficiency, do we even know what iron deficiency is anymore in the perioperative context beyond ferritin less than 30? So that, that one's for you, Anastasia. No problem, Soki. Thank you. I really, I almost could have script, I couldn't have scripted you to come in with that segue any better if I had tried. Um, but what I wanted to say was um, I recognise that uh, the PREVENT study did truly split the patient blood management uh, community in half. And as a haematologist, I was one of those people who wrote back on behalf of the Australian and New Zealand Society of Blood Transfusion to say, well, yes, you gave iron to everyone, but iron deficiency um, doesn't necessarily, is, isn't the only cause of, uh, of anemia that we see in the preoperative setting. And so that's part of the reason that Toby brought me along to thumb my nose, slightly thumb my nose at my comment that we wrote back in the, uh, in the Lancet review, uh, because it really did bear out that we, because I think my, the reason I made that comment in the Lancet, um, in the editorial commentary, was that in Australia, we do try to advocate to do iron studies and treat iron deficiency appropriately rather than just having ubiquitous use of IV iron for, uh, for those patients who are anemic. So I, I'm glad Lockie segued it that way. Um, but it does come back to that really big elephant in the room is what is iron deficiency? I think the definition of absolute iron deficiency seems plain and reasonable. However, if you do an audit of all the different laboratories that offer iron studies around the world, the lower limit of normal is wide and variable. And that's partly because we have different reference ranges based Based on your age. So children's are different from adults and it's different from neonates. Um, however, the impact of when our bodies say we need extra iron, that's a different question. And I think that's something that's only just starting to be explored now um, with some really beautiful translational research. Um, so I think very easy 
uh, ferritin less than 30 should be iron deficiency and it should be investigated and treated. I think normal iron studies, as we have articulated in this study, show, shows no benefit from giving IV iron. But there's about 50% of those patients that go to surgery that are anemic that have what we used to classically call functional iron deficiency but there's a big gap in our understanding um, because you can't really treat something you don't understand properly. And I think that's really what this paper is, is, is highlighting. And, and when you look to the design of the PREVENT study, this was taken into consideration because just putting my academic hat on, to address this one way would be to go to the Cochrane review that we did on the use of iron therapy to treat anemia. And if you break down the 77 randomized controlled trials in non-renal failure patients and those who are not pregnant, a third of all the people um, in those trials, the, sorry, a third of the trials, the inclusion criteria was anemia. A third, and then in the rest of the trials, it was predominantly a functional iron deficiency. And overall, only 14% of all the randomized controlled trials in the world on the use of iron therapy, both oral and intravenous, are to absolute iron deficiency. And when you look at functional iron deficiency, it's anything from ferritin less than 400 to TSATs less than 35%. Pick whatever you want. It's like secret center. Pick whatever you want. You know, you really can. And so... Therefore, we had to design almost like an umbrella trial, and it, it was a predefined subgroup analysis within that. And um, the interesting thing is that we actually produced this in Table 3 of the original manuscript, looking at the ferritin levels, but it was kind of missed in the interpretation. Um, so I think Prevent has asked that question, answered that question. In anyone undergoing major surgery, and this was big sod-off operations. Um, should you give them a, a bag of iron prior to surgery? Is it better than a bag of blood at the time of operation? And the answer doesn't appear to be that that is high-value care. Now, the reanalysis is very interesting, I think, because a lot of people said, well, overall, your group effect of i.e. The, of the intervention, the efficacy of the intervention, i.e. how much did it increase the hemoglobin by, wasn't great. I think, I can't remember, but it was about five or six grams per liter in prevent as a group effect. Now, within the realms of the other trials, but if you've got absolute iron deficiency, it, it was really quite a lot more here. So it was, I would say, a meaningful difference of over 10 grams per liter. Um, and that's meaningful. The rest, there wasn't a response. And we can talk about the response after surgery, which I think is, is an area for further intervention. Hmm. But my other argument is, shouldn't we be treating everyone in the hospital with a ferritin less than 30 who's anemic? So is this really the remit pre-assessment clinic or should all hospitals, Anastasia, have an intravenous iron service for the treatment of hospital-acquired anemia. If I may be inflammatory, I think every single doctor should be responsible for the recognition and the appropriate management of iron deficiency. As clinicians, I think if you see someone who's anemic, 
I get it. I'm a hematologist. But if I get someone who's anemic, then I look at their MCV and if it's low, then I would do some iron studies. Or if there was signs or a clinical report of bleeding, then I think it's reasonable to do iron studies. So I was thinking about what would be a meaningful analogy uh, to a NIST test. And I, I was thinking before we came live, both um, Lockie and Mick and Toby were joking about, uh, you know, the patient having a low blood pressure. And I was thinking if the blood pressure is low, you'll do something to increase the blood uh, increase that blood pressure. And yes, you could use a blood transfusion, but is that the best way we could increase the blood pressure? And I think the answer is probably no in, in the perioperative, in the postoperative setting as well. But I do think that it should be part of our standard of care for every single patient who is anemic. You consider the underlying cause and you treat the underlying cause. Um, possibly a little bit, um, you know, a bit too pragmatic and a bit too old-fashioned and not very sexy. So I, I guess I'm saying I don't think it should sit in a service. I think everyone should be accountable for it, not just the pre-anesthetic clinics. So just going back to some of the clinical findings from the reanalysis, can you speculate as to why some of the um, clinical outcomes, such as um, blood transfusion, death, amount of blood received, post-operative complications, length of stay, et cetera, um, that there wasn't an association found there between uh, those who did and didn't have their hemoglobin levels increased? Well, we, we didn't look at response, i.e. change in hemoglobin. So when you, when you do the analysis, you can look at the group effect, i.e. those within iron deficiency anemia who got treated not, but we didn't actually break it down by responders versus non-responders. You have to be slightly careful when you take a trial um, like PREVENT, which compares two groups and 500 patients, and you start splitting it up and salami slicing. One of the <clears throat> issues of post-hoc analyses is you can get issues of multiplicity. And the really interesting thing we saw in this trial was that those people with iron deficiency and anemia who received intravenous iron had a longer length of stay in hospital. Now that is a post hoc analysis and that could purely be an issue with the statistics. But I'd put it to you the other way around. If we'd shown it reduced length of stay in hospital, that would have been in the title and um, my Christmas card list from the iron companies would be very long. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but uh, it's not. So, Caution is always needed, um, but we have not shown patient benefit. And 10 years ago, when we designed this trial, it was very much transfusion appeared to be an issue in surgery. There's a lot of heterogeneity, perhaps a little bit too much use, a um, bit of bravado. I've got very wet feet. Am I a wonderful surgeon? Blah, blah. Um, but now... With patient blood management, we've reduced variation in transfusion practices. Surgery perhaps is quite a good success story for patient blood management. And what's the biggest single use benefit in patient blood management in surgery? Use of tranexamic acid. It's a you know dirt cheap, really simple. Why aren't we just doing it at every single operation? Um, I mean, Lockie, from your side, I mean, you, you're working in cardiac and liver surgery. Um, are you transfusing as much as you were 10 years ago? Well, I think um, from a liver transplant point of view, um, 
I think that's a difficult example to to bring out because that that particular surgical procedure is often bedeviled by um, uh, close encounters with the IVC, and and that in turn in a critical bleeding massive transfusion situation that can lead to obviously increased use of blood blood products. But if we look at elective procedures, if we look at hemihepatectomies or elective cardiac surgery. Uh, I think we've had an enormous benefit from a cardiac point of view from the TRIX series of trials uh, where we've shown, now what are we up to now, TRIX4? And we've shown no difference in outcome in terms of restrictive versus liberal transfusion. And I think that's given a lot of people permission where there's no evidence of physiological endpoint dysfunction where you don't have uh, reduction in your mixed venous or your cerebral oxygenation, if you don't have ST changes, if you don't have evidence of rising lactate or end organ impairment, it's given people permission to allow that hemoglobin target to drift down. And we're not seeing surgeons or anaesthetists anymore um, demanding that their patient be transfused up to 100. So I think that's one of the enormous success stories. But when we look at sort of the prevent trial results and we look at the results of these subgroup analyses, if there is to be a benefit, particularly in the ferritin of less than 30 group, we're probably only looking in the order of maybe one unit or two units of blood. Now, when we look at transfusion as an endpoint, in my mind, we can separate out into two things. There's one argument which has been proven and one argument which hasn't been proven. So the argument that hasn't been proven in, in my mind is that whether or not avoiding one unit of blood or another unit of blood in prospective observational randomized trial work, is there a prospective study that shows a difference in outcome? Separate from that is the benefit in preserving a very, very precious supply because blood is always in short supply, particularly with the COVID emergency. And I know, Mike, in the UK, that's a big problem at the moment. But I'd like to redirect this question a little bit to Anastasia. Anastasia, from an outcomes point of view, does one unit really matter? If we say, if I transfuse this patient, a certain number of patients, a single unit of blood, is there going to be a detectable harm signal there? Or is this something that simply exists within retrospective observational studies and could well be confounded? And just before you answer that, Toby, um, Anastasia, I know Toby's got his hand up there and is, is desperate to come in, so I'll... Once Anastasia has answered, I'll, there's a couple of very interesting findings in this analysis that are slightly different, which I'll, I'll come back to. Anastasia? Thank you. I was going to say, uh, as Lockie was talking, I was thinking of three issues. So I think really you've, uh, you've posed me a question that's very hypothesis generating. So I don't think we have good, clear randomized control studies that says one unit of red cell transfusion is going to directly correlate with harm. Um, and I think it does come down to study design partially because you have to quantify an outcome and transfusions is a binary outcome. So yes, no, and then the number that they had. However, as you were talking about that, I'm just involved in a neonatal study that does that has looked at um, inflammatory responses of harm associated with transfusion and some interventions that are associated with that. But again, that's still in a randomized control study. Uh, the pilot data was interesting. So I think we're still in the um, 
hypothesis generating phase. But when I was thinking about preparing for today's webinar, I did think about, you know, what's the point of our blood transfusions? So, you know, we, we would give a blood transfusion with the aim to increase somebody's hemoglobin with the preference that it was going to increase their oxygen carrying capacity. And I think Lockie slightly alluded to, there's lots of different things we can do other than just giving a unit of blood to increase someone's hemoglobin in the hope that we uh, increase that primary endpoint of improved oxygenation uh, to the kind of to the um, where it actually needed in the small vessels. So there's also been some research looking at how well does a transfused unit of allogeneic blood actually transfuse oxygen uh, in kind of uh, small fluidic models as well. And it's possibly not as good as we had hoped for as well. Um, and I know this is a whole lot of random thoughts, but the last thing to say is a lot of the data that we presented, that we classically quote at the beginning of this research, is that the way we manufacture blood and blood products has significantly changed. Um, we've uh, the introduction of universal leukodepletion depletion in 2009 and 2011 in other parts of the country, other part of the world, has seen a reduction in many of those adverse inflammatory um, or the trim sort of associated harm that we have seen. So I think whenever we think about risks and benefits, our blood is getting safer, therefore recognising a risk to a benefit or harm to a benefit is slightly skewing because they are safe and blood products and components are getting safer, but we have to define what that benefit is. And as a purist, you'd say, well, what's the patient's symptoms and what am I trying to manage or improve? And in surgery, we can't really say, are you short of breath? Are you um, able to look after the kids? Uh, are you able to do, you know, ask that real patient focused centre of the improvement you're getting? They are actually, unfortunately, based on numbers and outcomes. So health, um, economic outcomes. So I know I've said a lot of things um, as possibly more hypothesis generation or just discussion generating, but I don't think anything is as, as simple as we used to think it was. Toby? So <clears throat> we, we focused very much on what the initial primary endpoint to prevent was. One thing that has been slightly missed from all this is that we, in, in the primary trial, um, we saw a dramatic reduction in readmissions to hospital. And this wasn't a little thing. This wasn't a, oh, there's a bit of a trend there. Um, we saw almost a 40% reduction in readmissions to hospital within eight weeks, and those results were sustained to six months, not just in numbers of people, but actually also in the total number of readmissions. And this raises some interesting questions because in surgery uh, globally, one in four people are sent home with a hemoglobin less than 10. And when you look at um, the data on uh, quality of life studies, 10 or 100, whatever you, England versus Australia, um, that's the inflection point where you see changes in quality of life. Now, it then raises a mechanistic question, and PREVENT was not designed as a mechanistic study. Um, absolute iron deficiency, where you have no iron in the body, and therefore your red cells are not being able to be made because there's no building blocks. That's my surgical understanding of hematology. Um, uh, that, that's common sense. Give iron, they get better. And we showed that. Now, functional iron deficiency, I'm not really sure what it is. So you've got not enough iron in the body because you've lost it. And then you've got inflammation or perhaps cytokine-mediated erythropoietin suppression. 
Um, but then the interesting thing with surgery is that the surgeons and the anesthetists take blood out of patients. And so you've then got, it's not so much a hypoxic response because you can tolerate hypoxic quite well, but it's the blood loss response, which is perhaps through a pathway mediated by a, a hormone called erythropherone. And erythropherone might stimulate red cell manufacture more than the suppression, the hepstein-mediated iron sequestration. So we've got the pivot table shifting, and maybe, although preoperative iron doesn't affect perioperative outcomes, the aftermath of surgery where people are more likely to have true iron deficiency, but we can't tell because we haven't got markers because ferritin's an acute phase response, maybe that's a group of patients that we need to look at in more detail. Um, and I think that might be a bit of an area that we've overlooked. And it's perhaps not dissimilar to women in the postpartum. Um, and I'll, I'm gonna, I, I, I've deliberately loaded that question back to Anastasia. <laughs> I know, and I want to give Lockie a chance to chat because I'm sure he's got something. But I was going to say, we definitely see in, uh, if we, if we transfuse a neonate, a premature neonate that doesn't have a robust hemopoietic system, if we give them blood transfusions, they do definitely have erythropoiesis suppression above and beyond what you'd normally have um, on discharge. And so I understand this is not a uh, something that you can directly translate into an adult, um, kind of an adult model, but we definitely do see a delayed response in normal hemopoiesis if, if we have recurrently transfused neonates. Um, and I think the same thing for um, the obstetric um, patients. Those women have an amazingly normal uh, capacity to regenerate their red blood cells because they're not sick. There's not inflammation. They actually have a very robust response if given the correct building blocks. Um, so I, um, I, we don't seem to have as much uh, inflammation effect in our obstetric population that you would have in your perioperative setting. And Back to you, Lucky. Yeah, Lachlan. Yeah, so I think just to sort of close off this this loop of conversation, and and I'm, I'm aware, Mike, that some of your viewers might be looking at this with the paper open in front of them, and and if uh, if they are, please feel free to turn your hymnals to Figure One, because Figure One really has the answer to this, and it, it shows that there is substantial postoperative hemoglobin incrementation in the intervention group with absolute iron deficiency and with functional iron deficiency as well. Uh, so why is there not the same response seen in functional iron deficiency in the preoperative period? I have two hypotheses. The first is that, that these patients actually, as far as the body is concerned, they're not iron deficient. And what we've labeled them as iron deficient, but ultimately the bone marrow doesn't care what we think. Uh, it's going to do its own thing. But in the immediate post-operative period where there has been a marked reduction in hemoglobin uh, because of the surgical procedure, uh, these patients then do subsequently increment, but it takes them some time, as does the absolute iron deficiency group. And my theory is basically, as Toby said, that this is... Uh, initially a, a post-operative hepcidin response which suppresses the generation of, of new red blood cells or what I what I label and I think Anastasia tolerates me labeling restorative erythropoiesis and then once this acute phase response has resolved as Toby says 
uh, erythropherone takes over. And if you've got enough iron, then you subsequently increment. When exactly this response kicks in, it's somewhere between day 14 and week eight, and we have no idea where it is. So uh, Toby, Anastasia, and I are in the initial stages of, of planning a series of mechanistic observational studies to try and work out when this transition point occurs and is there any way that we could potentially treat this prior to the normal transition point evolving. I think there's one other important message, Mike, in this, in that at the time that the PREVENT trial was being run, there were some concerns about the use of intravenous iron. After all, why does the body sequester iron in response to stress? That's an innate response, um, you know, uh, because bacteria like iron to grow, as cancer likes iron to grow. And there has been some data out there suggesting that the use of intravenous iron is associated with infection. One thing we're, we're quite pleased to report is that there were no significant uh, adverse events, SAEs, uh, in the intervention group, and there was no real difference in the adverse event rate between placebo and intravenous iron. And this is a well-monitored group. The other interesting thing, uh, and to come out soon, is there may be a reduction in uh, infections in the post-operative period with the use of intravenous iron. And I hypothesize that's due to uh, increased mitochondrial function and wound healing, et cetera. But one other important and rather quite topical thing is that we didn't see any issues with hypophosphatemia that has been reported in some of the products of intravenous iron. Um, again, these are case series or cohort studies, um, but in this setting of a randomized controlled trial where the product was given two weeks, on average two weeks prior to surgery, those are the peak incidents, we know there's no difference between the two arms of the trial. So there's been no harm seen with this intervention. And I think that's uh, a salient point as well that shouldn't be missed. So we're not causing harm from this intervention. So that's Absolutely fascinating discussion about this uh, and the, the primary trial and also this reanalysis. But I'm absolutely 100% sure that uh, that the group will be working on something um, in the coming years and, and probably already are. So what are the important questions um, that you as trialists and also other trialists must now focus on in this area? Take it away, Toby. <laughs> So I think one, we need to we have further analyses where, for instance, we've got all the EPO levels and the Hepstein levels in the people at randomization and pre-op. So we have the opportunity to address do people is one of the reasons why we didn't get the results we wanted to do because we didn't give EPO. Well, that's really easy. We'll have a look at the EPO levels. And if people are are people deficient in EPO, and did that affect our results? Um, so, uh, spoiler, we're, we hope to bring that to you shortly. Um, there's one very important thing. Second, um, inflammation is cleverer than us. Well, it's definitely cleverer than me. I don't fully understand it. And I think we need to go back to basic mechanisms to understand 
How does inflammation uh, change in the perioperative period? And at, at what point is it a problem and what point is it not a problem? And third, um, if someone would like to give us an awful lot of money, then we need to do a study um, looking at post-operative intravenous iron use to see whether or not that's beneficial to patient outcomes uh, in that regard. And uh, Lockie and Anastasia, I'm going to hand over to you, but those are the three areas that we're looking at at the moment. Sounds like you guys are yeah. going to be busy. Um, yeah, I think, um, you know, just to highlight really briefly, um, because I know we're short on time, Mike, I think that the, the readmission finding from, um, from the original prevent study, it, it shouldn't be considered something that everyone can go out there and point it and say, yes, look, you see, there's a benefit. It's a secondary endpoint in a study in which the primary outcome was negative, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So when we do design this post-operative intravenous iron trial, it's critical that readmission, which is important to us, it's important to patients, it's important to health economists, that has to be the primary outcome of that trial. So post-operative intravenous iron for the prevention of readmission uh, is probably the big outstanding question that's come out of PREVENT, as well as all the other mechanistic information that we need to collect. And it's really important to understand that we're back to where we were 10, 10 years ago. Anemia prior to surgery is associated with worse outcome. We're now showing anemia after surgery is associated with a worse outcome. We are also showing that intravenous iron is effective to treat anemia in that setting. But does association translate to causality? We're exactly where we were 10 years ago. Well, so we I'll just go with ditto. <laughs> <laughs> Ultimately, the, the question that we need to answer is, by doing all of this, are we improving patient outcomes or are we just fixing a number to make ourselves feel better? And that's really the question at the heart of all of this. Well, thank you very much um, to three of you. We've had lots of, of viewers actually this morning um, and um, it's really great. I, I'm, we'll find out soon. Uh, I'll be able to go and see where those viewers are if they're getting up early like me in the UK or if they're in, in Australia or elsewhere around the world. Um, but regardless, the one of them will be my mum. <laughs> um, one, of... <laughs> one, of, one of the things about this broadcast now is it will be available throughout the day, um, all day and forever, in fact, on our Twitter page. Uh, but also do look out for this podcast so you can listen to it at the gym or in the car, etc. on Spotify. Um, and um, send us your correspondence to the journal um, because there's an awful lot here that's been discussed. And, and if you've got any questions for the authors, uh, about some of the detail of the trial and some of the findings, then please do send us a letter and we will publish it and we'll get the authors to respond as well. Um, so thank you very much, um, Toby Anastasia and Lachlan, and have a, a great day. Thanks so much. Go well, Mike. The Anastasia Podcast. <laughs>